I think it's important, and this can be achieved by a coach, I believe, to create mental health literacy within the club, because especially in the sports world, mental health is a lot of times perceived as mental toughness, which is not. Like that has to be a very, very clear statement. Mental health is not equal to mental toughness. Welcome to Slapping Glass, where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome current Austrian national team assistant coach and former assistant with the EuroLeague's Jalgris, Stefan Grassiger. Coach Grassiger is here today to discuss depression, anxiety, and mental health in athletes and coaches, building a defensive shell, and we talk limiting turnovers, first plays of the game, and defending great pick and roll passers during the always fun start, sub, or sit. This episode is brought to you by our partners at Fast Model Sports. Their Fast Draw Playbook software is a great resource for coaches to build and organize their plays and drills. We use Fast Draw on a daily basis to create and share featured playbooks in our Sunday morning newsletter. And along with Fast Draw, we use Fast Scout with our teams for detailed scouting reports, key stats, and to share video with players and staff. Listeners of our podcast can now receive 15% off all Fast Model products when they use the code SGPOD15. That's 15% off all Fast Model products with the code SGPOD15. Visit slappingglass.com for more information today. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach Stefan Grassiger. It's great to have you here. We are really excited to talk to you about all sorts of stuff today. You've done some phenomenal work on depression, anxiety in athletes and all the things that go into that. So we're going to start there with your work on that and specifically wanted to start with the role that perfectionism plays in mental health with athletes and coaches and how it can be both good, but then also turn detrimental if not viewed the correct way. As a bit of a background for the listeners, I did my diploma thesis for the University of Vienna psychology department on athlete mental health and how perfectionism plays a part in it. And what I found in my research and what I incorporated in my thesis as well is how different forms of perfectionism actually can affect mental health. And I think the biggest discovery in a way for me, I thought like as, as a lay person in the beginning, I thought, okay, perfectionism is perfectionism. But there's been a study in, in Sweden, I believe, where two types of perfectionism were distinguished. PS, perfectionistic strivings and perfectionistic concerns. And what the study found and my study confirmed was that perfectionistic concerns or in other ways, negative perfectionism have a bad effect on the mental health of, of an athlete. Maybe what are the distinguishing factors with perfectionistic strivings, positive perfectionism? It's like what we would believe of players like, I don't know, Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant, like this willingness to set high goals for oneself, like to achieve, to become the best version of yourself. Whereas the negative perfectionism, perfectionistic concerns are more concerned in a way with being afraid of failures, having a fear of making mistakes, of not living up to expectations or to one's goals. Again, like the positive connotation is I want to reach my goals, whereas the negative connotation would be I'm afraid to be a failure or not achieve my goals. And that's an important distinction to make. And as the research showed, yeah, it does have a huge part in mental health issues. So coach, kind of diving into that a little bit more and what that looks like on the court. You're a coach at a very high level, and there's a lot of pressure to win. There's a lot of stress on these athletes to, in a sense, you know, strive to be as perfect as possible, to win games, to keep their jobs, to feed their families, all those sorts of things. So then when you think about what that looks like, let's say maybe in a positive light, on a day-to-day basis, what that striving looks like, as opposed to when an athlete is tailoring the other way. I think one important thing that we need to understand as coaches is that a lot of these things and how, how the onset of mental illnesses can begin is that these problems often stem from internal factors first and foremost. The pressure only makes it tougher or makes the whole thing harder. But like a lot of the guys at that level have to be used to that pressure from media, from fans, from 
also within the team, obviously, if, if right. things are not going well. I think the more decisive factor is stuff that's within the athlete, within the, no, I don't want to say athlete, within the individual, mm -hmm. within the person. How does that look like? Uh, a person who strives to become better, I think it's extra hours in the gym, but not in a way like if the person shot or played poorly and then like as a sort of punishment, self-punishment, staying in the gym one hour, then, you know, jacking up 100 shots just to feel better but it's just you know like hey i need to become better on my pull-up going to the left hands boom here's 10 makes but 10 makes after each practice you know like having a clear goal in mind uh -huh. working within reasonable repetition amounts also compared to what you do in terms of competition schedule you're not going to be able to have two hours pull-ups in the euroleague or in the nba because it's too many games Whereas a negative perfectionistic concern would be yeah like trying to rid yourself of the demons in a way purging yourself in a way by shooting, I don't know, 700 shots. And there's nothing wrong with shooting 700 shots. But if it's a negative reaction to a poor performance the day before or the night before, that's where some alarm signals are ringing off. I want to add, sorry, this is like on a case-to-case -case basis. Right. Again, like you cannot say like everybody who takes 700 shots is a negative perfectionist. Stefan, you mentioned the big factors are also internally. And so yeah. I'm wondering, as a coach, what are some of the conversations or some of the questions a coach can maybe do or engage with on a day-to-day -day basis that can maybe help the coach send some warning signs or maybe some preempt it getting mm -hmm. worse or knowing what kind of player is striving versus concerning? I think as simple and as, as stupid as it may sound, just being a human being to the players and being able to distinguish between player A and person A, you know, like player having two components in a way, and just being able to engage with somebody in normal talk, no matter the performance the last night or even maybe the behavior, you know, maybe you have like a more difficult player to handle, but he's, he or she is still a human being. Mm -hmm. So I think just a regular conversation without having like an ulterior goal, like, I don't know, I need this guy to play defense for 40 minutes on the best score next week. You know, how's that guy feeling? How did he react? How does he feel after the last game? How does he feel after falling out of the rotation a bit? What are his goals or her goals? I think engaging in a conversation, and I think we'll, we'll get to this topic a little bit later, also like in how coaches can help athletes that might be affected. I think just being able to reaching out is, it's the first step. It may seem like a small step, but it is a huge step in reality. Then too, I'm also curious, you know, I agree these conversations just about the person and who they are before, but then when you're on the court, if you're worried about a player who may be a, the wrong perfectionist, how you tailor feedback or criticism at the same time still do your job as a coach and try to get him better, get the team better? I think especially as an assistant coach, now we're like a happy meeting or a meddling of coaching and the psychological part. I think it's really important to be level-headed in terms of giving feedback. Hey, here's what I believe you need to do or you can do to become better. But also if you sense that some person or some players are like punishing themselves or putting a lot of pressure on themselves, we as coaches, we're not going to be able to heal them. Like I think that's a misconception or conception that we got to throw right out of the window at like close to the start of this podcast, but we can have a small impact or a small guiding, pushing role in towards alleviating some of these symptoms. So if I talk with a player that's like super hard on himself, it's like, look here, it's the right decision to take that shot. It's the right decision to make that drive. And now it's just a matter of making that shot. But I know you don't miss it on purpose if you miss it. I know you don't make the wrong decision on purpose. Here's our plan. How are we going to work to make it better? And we go from there. I think you mentioned it in your paper and just about how mental health and sports, somewhat of a stigma, hard for coaches and people to talk about in and around it. In your opinion, what are ways that coaches can have the conversations and sort of build a culture within their organization to where these conversations can happen freely without fear of being stigmatized as soft or weak mentally, but then still have a very high achieving organization, right? Kind of finding that balance where they can talk about it, but also push players in a direction towards winning. To answer your second question first, how to like combine being like very open or like combining this performance element with the mental health element as a coach, mm -hmm. like strictly as a coach, I think it's super difficult because as you mentioned, on one end, obviously, if a player is not doing well, it's a huge concern just on a personal level. You want that person to be the best version of him or herself, obviously. But that sometimes might not meddle with what's best for the team or best for you winning games. Example, if one player is struggling on the court and also mentally, and he might not give you the things you need, but you need to win the next game, like right. it's a difficult thing. 
it's a really difficult thing to get that together. And that's why I think the coach can never be the sports psychotherapist. That's, I think, a really important thing. We can help the players, but we cannot heal them, is my opinion. And I think that's something mm -hmm. that was very clear in the research that I did also. To your first question, I think it's important, and this can be achieved by a coach, I believe, to create mental health literacy within the club, to educate players, staff, fans maybe even, what is a mental health issue exactly? Because what I believe, especially in the sports world, mental health is a lot of times perceived as mental toughness, which is not. Mental toughness is not mental health. Mm -hmm. Like That has to be a very, very clear statement. Mental health is not equal to mental toughness. How else, I believe, could Michael Phelps have become the most decorated Olympic athlete of all time, while at the same time admitting to having been suffering from depression. Mm -hmm. And I think this is like the first, first, first big step in order to understand and then create a guideline within an organization. Okay, what to do if you suspect or you know that an athlete is having problems with depression, maybe, or competitive anxiety or anxiety disorder in general. You also asked, what can a coach do maybe for the public? I mean, I've been really late on the Ted Lasso train and your podcasts, uh, especially the one with Brad Stevens, helped me jump off of that. But the, in the last episode, and spoiler warning for everyone who hasn't seen it, <laughs> does say, I wish we would treat mental health issues differently. And why not use a press conference? Because at the end of the day, in my opinion, a player with a mental health issue is not different from a player who, I don't know, broke his foot. Right. It's both an ailment one the physical, the other psychological, and it might keep you from performing or might keep you out of action altogether, but it's treatable. Sure. Is it always 100% healable? I don't know, but you know, also players who, I don't know, tear the ACL might come back with some issues afterwards, but it's treatable. It is treatable. Stefan, if I can go back, I think you raised a great point with the distinction between mental toughness and mental health. What in your definition opinion is mental toughness and where does it start to differentiate then to where this is a mental health issue and he's not tough enough. I think mental toughness is probably thriving under difficult situations. Be that, I don't know, as you said, coming back of an injury or making a free throw when 50,000 crazed fans hurl obscenities your way. I don't know, like these kind of things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Working for non-basketball athletes or maybe also for basketball athletes who, for example, college athletes who work towards the final four, working towards that one goal in the season, never losing track of it, uh, being aware of all the small steps and going there. I think enduring the process, I think that's mental toughness in the sports context. Mental health, I think it spreads out to everyday life context as well. As I said, you can be mentally tough and win 37 gold medals yeah. or whatnot and still not be a happy person. Sure. I think it's more of a feel thing. You know that one is not the other. Yeah. And I agree because I just think, yeah, coaches, I think we're getting better, but you know, in the old days is always like that player's not tough enough. It would always be the default one that has nothing to do with toughness. He maybe be struggling with internal factors or, you know, in real life that coaches are not seeing. Let me add to that point. So according to WHO statistics, there's a certain percentage of cases among athletes. What led me to the conclusion is that out of a roster of 15 players per team, there's statistically 0 0.66666 depressed athletes per team, on average, obviously. Sure. Mm -hmm. Numbers show a trend, but they don't always tell the truth. But what that means, I've been coaching for 15 years now. There must have been at least one depressed athlete in one of my teams. Right. So to your point, like thinking about how we as coaches do that, like I know all about these things. I researched them for two years. And if I had to judge myself how... I would have worked with a mentally not healthy athlete, just reflecting my own coaching. I must have done a horrible job. And that's back to my point. It's like we as coaches, we have so much on our plate that we cannot expect ourselves to heal a player, but we damn sure must know what to do to help that player. And I think we all have a long way to go in achieving that. That includes myself. Coach, you've mentioned it a couple of times too, and, and I know there's a lot of layers to this conversation, but the competitive anxiety a player may feel where potentially they're okay from a mental health standpoint, say off the floor, but for whatever reason, when there's a score and the ball is tipped, it causes quite a lot of anxiety and it affects their performance. How do you view trying to help that player, basically, who's, you know, let's say, okay, from a mental illness standpoint, but competition really makes it difficult for them to compete? Like, I think this is where, where mental coaches can come in. 
those are specialists that like have probably more detailed answer or better answer for you. And again, this is different to a sports psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. I, I would really say like there's a difference between a psychiatrist and psychologist. Also, like if you have team components, team chemistry issues, or as you said, like competitive anxiety, I think that's where these mental coaches can come in. Dealing with a mental health issue is a different beast. With that being said, I may not sound like it, but I think I'm very big on negative thinking. Okay. <laughs> so like, I'm like, what's going wrong is going to go wrong probably. But what the good thing about this is, if you expect the worst in a way, that leaves you free to do anything. So what I try to tell my players is like, look, what's the worst that can happen? Yeah. You know, like if you don't fear the worst, but you expect the worst in a way, but that's my personal counterintuitive approach. <laughs> At the end of the day, it's a game. And even if there's a lot of money involved, there should be a certain level. And that's not like a tiny level, but a certain level of enjoyment to what you do. Coach, I think the other part of this that I know is a large part of your research too, was the role that sleep plays in all of this. So we'll throw it back to you to talk a little bit about your findings on how much of a role sleep plays in mental health. The simple answer is (laughs) it plays a lot Uh or a big role. It's a really, really important thing as it is also, I think from a physiological and body health standpoint, because obviously sleep is our biggest and often most overlooked key in terms of regeneration. And I think the same is true for cognitive and, and mental aspects. But we're not only talking about being mentally healthy. Like if we just talk about a, a simple basketball and games approaches, and you probably notice yourself as a coach, we also don't get to sleep right. as well or as regular or as long as we would like to. But, you know, even temporary loss of sleep can also impair your cognitive functions. For a player, that might mean, hey, here's a close-up coming. I need to make a quick decision, 0.5 basketball. Mm -hmm. But that decision cannot be taken because the cognitive ability is not up to task. A player might not remember a newly implemented play. That's one thing that comes in as well. It's a chicken and the egg problem with the mental health and sleep disturbances. Like on one hand, sleep disturbances can lead to mental health issues. But as you probably know, mental health issues also can lead to sleep disturbances. So I think improving the sleep hygiene, as some researchers call it, can be actually one of the tools that allows coaches to have an impact on the mental health of players, maybe. Probably the biggest one, actually, aside from, you know, reaching out to players, helping them find a sports psychiatrist or psychiatrist if they need to. I'd say probably monitoring and and helping athletes sleeping better is a big tool. Coach, what are you and a staff doing with your players currently to help with sleep? I think scheduling is the way to go. Like if you come home from a road game in, I don't know, in Madrid and come back uh, to Lithuania at three in the morning, you're not going to schedule a practice at 10 in the morning. I think that it sounds so logical and easy, but, you know, like allowing players to make up for the lost sleep, because let's not mince words also in the NBA. It's not that players are going to be able or even staff going to be able to go to bed at a reasonable hour every day. It's not not happening. Mm -hmm. I think there's no point in keeping that illusion up. So smart scheduling, also educating players on how to regenerate properly. It's like same with, you know, educating younger players what to eat. Might make sense to educate them how to sleep or when to sleep or what to do if they can't sleep at night. Can you, I don't know, take a one hour nap in the afternoon to make up for lost time? I think there was a report on ESPN about the French soccer national team, why they underperformed at the Euros or World Cup, because one of the reasons was that they were having late fortnight sessions. According to the report, you know, I'm not going huh. yeah. <laughs> to spread rumors here. And I, I, yeah. I have to look at it like, you know, like just educating people like, hey, that one Fortnite game might not be worth a decrease in performance or a decrease in mental health. And that's coming from a person who really enjoyed playing Fortnite back in the day. <laughs> you know, yeah, I think these are some areas where we as coaches can help guide our players towards sleeping better. And coach, on that scheduling thread, when you're on the road and so your players aren't in their own beds Mm. and how do you schedule maybe then the meals or the meetings and the practice and try to get in what you need to get done, but also keeping the component of like, we need to make sure these guys get rest and sleep so they can perform. So I think it's just having a sense of what players can endure and like, just straight up ask him, how are you feeling? Like with the Austrian national team, with coach Raul Corner, we always had this point system from one to ten, how you feel that day, and after practice from one to five, how intense was the practice? And by looking at the numbers, you also get a feel, obviously, okay, how tired are guys? How much did we push them in the last practice? And 
combining the eye test, looking at the numbers, talking to players and understanding the demands of the game. I think that's how you make your scheduling decisions. Coach, I know this is a topic we could talk hours and hours and hours on and we, we could lose sleep over it. <laughs> <laughs> that's how we should end the podcast right there. That, yeah. uh, <laughs> mic drop. Yes, that's yeah. a mic drop. <laughs> but before we turn to some on the court stuff here, just for coaches wanting to educate themselves more on this subject, do you have any favorite places, books, authors, websites, resources that you might send them to? First of all, I'd be happy to share my thesis and you guys already have the PDF, so feel free to include it in the newsletter. Yes, we will. In addition to that, there's two books on sleep, one called Why We Sleep and the other is called Good To Go. I think the HBO documentary, The Weight of Gold, might be an interesting way of just looking into the topic and understanding that this is not, you know, again, it's not a lack of mental toughness and it's not like soft players who, I don't know, cannot perform under pressure, like high, high, high level. And we're talking highest level athletes can be affected by this. In my thesis, there's a lot of secondary sources as well, but I think those two books plus the documentary, plus, you know, keeping your eyes and ears open. I think the Martin Rosen, Kevin Love, Paul George in the bubble, like whenever an athlete speaks out that he or she has suffered from anxiety or depressive symptoms, I think we should be all ears because knowing what the social stigma is in normal life, but all in athlete life and professional sports, even more so, I think that helps us realize what kind of a big issue this is. Coach, kind of shifting now from our conversation on mental health now to on the floor tactically and something that you are equally adept at talking about. And so we want to talk about thoughts on building rotations and thoughts on building your defensive shells, say behind a pick and roll or whatever action and how a coach can view the types of rotations that they do or do not want to be in from the ground up and then how that affects decisions for the rest of your defense. If we had that conversation let's say three months ago my answers would have been completely different because you know like the jump i took from the austrian league to the euro league was a huge one mm -hmm. and my most basic answer do everything in your power to stay out of rotations like for me like coming in here and i discussed this with my mentor coach martin schiller who's been mm -hmm. probably the biggest influence in my coaching life and probably my development as a coach and somebody i'm, I'm really honored to call one of my best friends, um, we talked a lot about this. And I was like, ah, uh, you know, if we are more aggressive on the ball or if we are forced into rotation, we can play the extra pass, stunt here. You know, I was like used to confusing and forcing the offense to make decisions. And he helped me understand that at a certain level, teams will pick you apart. Like the moment there's an advantage, there's two on the ball, it's over basically. So my first answer would be do everything in your power to stay out of rotation. If you're forced into rotations, let's say because you are forced to hedge because you don't have a rim protector to block or your bigs cannot switch or, I don't know, your point guard is too small to switch, whatever. I think you got to be clear and consistent into your rotations and your man-to-man -man shell should align as closely as possible to your pick-and-roll shell. Sure. And I used to think that, yeah, you can have a man-to-man -man shell and then once the pick-and-roll happens, your shell principles change. I think that's not the case anymore, at least in my <laughs> thinking. So... The last two months have been for me, you know, like a big, <laughs> I finally feel like I, I see the world in color, you know, like everything. <laughs> it's just, you know, like I learned so much. And I would say in, in terms of rotations, to answer your question, stay out of rotations as much as possible and have your shell principles in the man-to-man -man aligned with what you do in the pick and roll, whatever that may be. If you ice, you ice, meaning no middle, no paint. You're probably going to pull the help set in really deep. If you hedge, you probably have to think about, okay, how much can I send into the screen while not giving up middle? If you're a middle, no paint team, I think that's a tough discussion to have. Uh -huh. You know, like I could list 5,000 things. Like my advice would be, be as consistent as possible and be aware that different types of coverages do not meddle perfectly with different types of regular shells. Sure. Whatever you do with that discrepancy then is your call, obviously. But the more you manage to have it go hand in hand, the better, obviously. And the most important rotation probably at this level is short roll. Okay. So ideally, again, depending on what the coverage is, I was always, again, because the level of players you encounter in other leagues, and again, your league is probably the second best competition in the world. Mm -hmm. 
some might argue the best even depending on you know where you stand on european basketball versus nba basketball but it's in the upper echelon for sure, sure. so if that ball goes into the short roll teams will pick you apart from there and for me it used to be okay let's have the six foot eight deep rolling big catch on short roll i don't care that's where i used to be now i'm like okay we got to do everything in our power to not even let the ball go there so for example if you're more aggressive in your pick and roll coverage that means you need to pull the nail in really aggressively Stefan, to kind of like start at the beginning, if you want to stay out of rotation, if your goal is let's stay out of rotation, how do you view guarding the ball and on-ball pressure? I think there's an element of reading also defensively, less so in terms of you're allowed to be a free safety basically and do whatever you want, but like knowing what the opponent can do and knowing what your strengths are. So or weaknesses for that matter. For me personally, the way I would guard is I would, on the ball, I would have the feet of the on-ball defender align with the three-point line. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to open up baseline because that forces you into rotation again. And I think we as coaches, and I've been guilty of that for sure, like we are like, okay, we can rotate here, boom, 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 and have like the most complex and sophisticated ideas of how to rotate behind the pick and roll or on a one-on-one drive. But in reality, if you manage to cancel a screen, to stop a screen, you're set. You don't have to worry about that. Right. Yeah. Good that you say that, Pat, because I think that's the most important component to defense. Like, can you stay in front of the ball? So the way I would do it, again, I would align my player's feet with the three-point line and have the nose of the on-ball defender on the top shoulder. Because again, if you're in no middle, no paint team, if you open your feet too much, you're either going to get beat baseline cleanly yeah. and the last man is not going to be able to be there in time because the lane is just open. Plus, if the on-ball defender gets open towards the middle, meaning the offense attacks the front foot, there's no way of him stepping back, pivoting back where he can get in front of the ball. So for me, it's a flat stance, nose on the top shoulder, plus arm length distance as long as the ball is in a triple threat mm-hmm. or dribbling. If... The ball now becomes passive, meaning ball over the head, or he pivots away from the basket. That's where you can be more aggressive and armbar into the guy. Okay. This is a thing that I stole from another one of my mentors, I uh, already mentioned him, Coach Raul Corner. I would call that the advanced retreat principle. If you see the ball handle become passive, you would advance and be up in his grill, basically. Yep. You know, trace the ball and armbar. If you see, okay, now he could go downhill on you, beat it with a live dribble or a triple threat. Here is, as a rule of thumb, arm length distance. If the defender is super quick and he guards an offensive player, the likes of, you know, myself, who probably cannot dribble twice without breaking his ankle, <laughs> his own ankle, that is. Of course, then you can pressure like crazy, right? Yeah. But that's where the decision element comes in. How do you view then then lane pressure, you know, and where do you want, if you're one pass away, what do you think the role of that is and how does that factor in? I think there's, at least in European basketball, with the exception of guarding entries, or guarding, you know, different deny areas like the high post or the low post. This, you know, one pass away aggressive deny, the Bobby Knight defense, is it, you almost don't see it anymore, at least at no. the pro level. So lane pressure for me would be, instead of, you know, being two-thirds of the court and uh, denying, you're probably in a similar position just with your arms spread out and being ready to jab and stunt at the ball. You know, lane pressure in terms of playing your length and closing visual space for the offense. Okay. You know, like scare the ball handler off of driving. So stunting is important. Does passing around the perimeter scare anyone or is it more the dribble penetration when you look at your lane pressure? Dribble penetration for sure. Yeah. So coach, my next question, I guess, is we know we don't want to be in rotations, but the reality is there's probably going to be half the game where you just are because you're playing great players. So what are the ways that you try to then rectify where you're beat off the dribble or they catch it on the short roll and you have to rotate and sort of the thoughts on, you know, recovering after that. So on dribble penetration, and this is now exclusively my thought, the way I used to teach it back in Austria, especially with having a young team or a team that's very similar sized, I think there's something to, you know, peeling off mm-hmm. after getting beat. And we used to have the cue of run to where your help came from. So let's say there is a slot drive towards the baseline. I get beat. The last guy, the helper helps. So for me, my first peel would be to the opposite corner. But then I see help the helper coming in. So that's my new help. Now I have to go to the opposite slot or nail wherever 
that person might be. I think there's some situations where peeling off is really tough. I think a baseline drive with a big in the opposite read spot, you know, like yeah. my board with me, like, you know, drive comes and the opposite big circles in. I think this is really tough to peel off of. But I personally like to teach that. But I do understand that at a certain level, you're not going to peel your point guards onto Eddie Tavares. <laughs> right. I mean, you can, but uh, if you don't fall into the legs of the big, being, you know, meaning picking off a low pass or pushing the guy out, it's going to be tough. That's where I stand, at least in my teaching back in Austria. And I guess within the peel and all that and having to then rotate, just your view on trying to teach a closeout. You know, when you break your feet down, do you fly by? Like, what is important on a closeout to you when you're in rotation? First of all, I think I'm, I'm the wrong person to ask because <laughs> Coach Martin Schiller is he's an expert on the closeouts. So you, you should get him on the pod, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you should obviously anyhow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so closing out with high hands, I think is important. Showing your hands, your fingers early, being in a no middle, no paint stance again on the drive, chopping your feet as you approach the player. I cannot give you an exact because I don't even know myself. This is like one of the just get it done things. And I think there's an element to closing out aggressively against the corner because everybody can make the corner three. And again, this is something that I've learned over the last two months. Over the time that I talked to coach about these things, if you see that the average three-point percentage from the corner is closer to 50% than it is to 30, you know that that's a shot that can kill you. And I think uh, coach Trinkieri talked about this on your podcast as well. Stefan, I'd like to go back to, you said something, which I, I agree with. There's, there's certain aspects that are like, just get it done things. And I guess, how do you teach those things when a player asks on a closeout and they're struggling or confused? But I also agree. It's hard to say, like, I can't tell you, you know, a half a meter away, start breaking down. It's not a universal. So how do you get that transference or help the player when it is kind of a, just get it done thing? It's a good question. I think on a case-by-case -case basis. So, you know, what we do, we do a lot of video work with our guys also individually. And it's probably, you know, like just through these continuous drops in the bucket, you know, like the, we, in German, we have the saying, uh, which translates to like the consistent drop is what empties the stone inside. Yeah. I don't know if there's a saying like this in English, but I think you understand. I like it. Yeah. Or what I'm trying to say. So, you know, like just help the player figure out what the ideal distance is for him by working in practice again not having them subject to 20 minute closeouts drill but i'll take a guy and say okay boom three corner closeouts run me off the line yeah mm -hmm. be aggressive with your hands look to recover and then also like see what that individual player likes to do with his or her feet for example if some players if they're late they try to push off still from their outside foot and with that slide step get there but for other players they don't have that explosiveness maybe maybe the cross step mm -hmm. you know crossing your feet might make sense and you're not going to get them to stopping the ball but maybe veering the ball into a tougher finish or into stunts or help so case-by-case -case basis and analyzing individually with the player i'd say Earlier, you said about canceling a screen mm -hmm. and how obviously that can keep you out of rotation. What are ways you look to cancel screens or how can you cancel screens? I think it has to do with ball pressure and then pickup pressure, especially like on drag screens, for example. The term we used was earning the under, which means if you want to go under on a drag screen, for example, it's not enough to wait for that drag screen to happen and then go under lazily but like press into the ball mm. and before going under pressure the ball and you might even be able to knife over the screen. Yeah. In a set play, canceling the screen, in my opinion, is always a job of two people. First of all, on the ball, obviously, ball pressure, no middle, no paint. And as soon as you hear the coverage call, you want to, and this is where I said in the beginning or said before, your shell might look a little bit different in the pick and roll as opposed to the man-to-man. -man. Again, you should keep it as consistent as possible, but this would be a situation, I hear the screen coming, now I need to press the into the ball doesn't matter if the guy is in a triple threat if he's scribbling the ball now you got to put pressure on the guy and ideally you manage to push the guy over the screen without getting screens what helps here is if the big can hold up the screener sprinting up instead of being disconnected just hey bump the guy bump the guy make him screen i don't know one meter or two steps or whatever further out i think it's important to understand and this took me a while and again, like for me, the first three weeks here was trying to figure out what happened because everything was so fast for me. <laughs> and there's no shaming in, admi in admitting that. Like this was, it's amazing. Like the, the quality of the players you have here, right? Sure. But it really at this level, it's important. It's often not about the pick and roll itself, offensively or defensively. The battle is already decided or fatal blows had already been struck before the pick and roll happens. 
the way you set up a ball screen or the way you manage to be in the grill of a guy before the ball screen happens often dictates what happens afterwards. And I think this is, especially for young players, important to understand offensively and defensively. It's not only about the action itself. Of course, you want to have the correct reads. You want to have the moves coming off the screen. You want to recover on the pick and roll. But like it is with homework in school, if you do your job early, you're often going to be on the safe side. Yep. And knowing that I was a lazy student <laughs> back in the day, it's no surprise that it took me a couple of years to figure it out. You know? <laughs> Yeah, I like that saying, earning the under, Coach. Yeah. I'm going to steal that. Yeah, me too. I stole it as well, so yeah, okay. we're, we're all thieves. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, I'm free to hand it to you on the, on the terminology black market. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Coach, this has been really great so far, so thank you. Yeah. We want to transition now into a segment that we call Start, Sub, or Sit. And for those potentially listening for the first time, we're going to give you three different basketball topics, ask you to start one, ask you to sub one, bring it off the bench, and then ask you to, to sit one. We've got a few different ones for you here, different subjects. And so coach, if you're ready, we'll dive right in and get going. Let's do it. Okay. This first start, sub, or sit, this has to do with the first play of the game and the strategies that coaches might use in that very first possession where you get the tip and you're going to run something. So start, sub, or sit, the type of shot you want to get. So either you want it to go inside or you're looking for a jump shot, a specific player to get a shot in that first set or for some type of action to be run. So you just want to see how they play a pick and roll. You want to see how they guard back screens. So start, sub, or sit those three different philosophies. I'd start giving certain player the first shot. Okay. You know, you maybe you want to get some guy going who has been struggling or there's a matchup. I would extend it to maybe there's a matchup you want to exploit right away. Mm -hmm. So that would be my start. I'd sit the type of shot because I think, especially with defenses at a certain level, you might be looking for a pick and pop, but they take that first action away and then you got to be ready to play off of that. So you're not always, sometimes, but you're not always going to get, hey, this is a pick and pop for my four men. I'll get this now. Hey, what if they switch? Now we got to flow into the next one. So I think these things are in a way tough to predict. I think it's more about getting different players involved into the initial action where you believe that they can make something happen or you want those players to you know, be aggressive, whatever. And then sub would be seeing which coverages. My quick follow-up to you is with your sit. It's the type of shot. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because I think, obviously, depending on the level you play at, like you said, teams are going to mm -hmm. take away your initial stuff. But definitely known coaches that have come out and say, hey, I don't really want to shoot a three in this first set because the guy's not loose or whatever. Or I want to pound it inside because we want to just put pressure. Or a team that's really aggressive, we're trying to throw a back door. So I guess maybe not at the EuroLeague level because they take away so much stuff. But when you were at other levels, did that philosophy change at all as far as what you were trying to do early? Yeah, for sure. Like with my youth team, we had one player who's really athletic at the two. So for example, we would, and this is like a meddling in a way of my start and my sit. Okay. So it's basically the star player that I have to bench for disciplinary <laughs> reasons. Yeah. I don't know. Um, we would like, <laughs> first play, we would always break out an alley-oop or like a backscreen alley-oop. So we were always, okay, this is for that certain player. Plus it's that certain type of shot. So a little bit hard to distinguish. It's easier to distinguish at my level now because, again, there's some actions. There's so much switching going on at the four that if you say you want to have a pick and pop with the four, sometimes it's not going to happen. I mean, there's ways of, you know, like still getting that pop, you know, like slipping screens out early, peeling out. I think you guys called it the ghost screen, if I'm not yeah. mistaken, like yeah. kind of things. But in reality, it's not like you're going to get that shot every time. But what I believe you can control a little bit more for that first place, who's supposed to get the shot? Because it's a similar problem, obviously. But who's supposed to be involved in the action mm -hmm. and what kind of action you run? Coach, my follow-up is just with the first play, do you prefer to script it? So in the shoot around, or if you're practicing the day before, you're going to walk through the guys and you're going to tell them, this is what we're doing. Here it is. Or is it more a draw it up on the board? in the locker room 20 minutes before, maybe even in the last huddle? I think there's something scripting it or to, I think if you want to draw something up to run something out of an existing play. Mm -hmm. I'll give you an example. Um, we used to, with the team I was coaching in Austria, we used to have this uh, post-up set where, you know, there was a stagger on one side, three men coming off the five and the four to the opposite side. We would hit that guy and then cross screen. You know this play, this is Iverson yeah. said, right? So we would have a count out of that where we would fake the cross screen and set an elevator 
And for example, we would say, oh, okay, first one, we hit them with the regular one and now with the counter. Yeah. yeah. So it depends on if you want to do something that's completely out of your playbook or if you do something that you already have existing in your playbook. Also depends on the type of players you have. Uh, what are you expecting from the opponent? How much time you have as well? If you have 10 minutes to spare on a shoot around to script today, hey, why not? If those 10 minutes are better invested in, I don't know, cleaning up your pick and roll coverage, then I'd say you're going to see more pick and rolls defensively in a game than you see opening plays normally. <laughs> yeah. It's just math. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Coach, quick follow-up is now just on the other side of the coin, your opening defense. Are you one who let's, we're just going to zone them knowing they're going to probably have a opening play, let's zone them or let's switch everything or first pick and roll, we blow up, or is it just stay solid? play our stuff and handle what they throw at us. Again, I think it depends on the team you're coaching. Where I'm right now is like, hey, I want to be as consistent in my stuff defensively as possible, meaning I understand that we can cover hopefully everything with our principles. Mm -hmm. I do believe that especially in cup games, playoff games, marquee games, whatever it might be, there's an element to throwing teams off with breaking the rhythm. I don't know if that's necessarily something you want to do in the first play right away. Okay. But I think there is some merit to that. But if you would put me in a situation right now where I had to decide, I'd say we go with our principles. Okay. Because it's also, you know, in a way, it's like as a coach, you're a salesman offensively, and I think even more so defensively, because defensively, be it on a scouting report or be it in normal shell principles, there's always something you give up and you have to sell it to players and sell it to everybody what you're willing to give up and that you trust in all the other mechanisms that are supposed to hold your defense together, right? Yeah. So if you throw that overboard on the first play of the game, I don't know what kind of message that sends. Oh, that's a really good point. No. All right, coach, moving along to our second one is defending a great guard passer in the pick and roll. So you're going to play a great passing guard in the pick and roll and how to defend him. Would you want to trap the ball? And kind of with the rotations knowing we're going to give up. That's my sit. I can tell you that right away. <laughs> okay. Without knowing the attitude. <laughs> and then I won't even bother to explain it. Trap. Do you want to weak him? Try to force him to his left hand where maybe he's not as good of a playmaker? Or switch it and try to force him to play one-on-one, -on -one, make him a scorer? Whether or not I start or sub either of the other two depends on the scouting report of that player. Because if he can break me down on a switch, if he's a driver, he will get to a situation where he can create for others as well. Mm -hmm. Like, I think you just shifted the problem to forcing your big now to guard downhill on you. Yeah. So you just, you know, delayed the problem by a couple of seconds. If that guy is just a purely setup point guard, I think switching does make sense. But I say, if you drop or weak the guy and do not pull in help, like play that two on two as much as possible, look to make that guy into a scorer or ideally a pull-up, contested pull-up jump shooter, I think that's the way to go with good passers. They can beat you by scoring. No. If he's a good passer against trapping, again, obviously there's maybe a point to how good are the other guys passing, but if he whips that thing out crazy fast out of a trap, that can be tough. Coach, with the weak defense, and maybe this goes a little bit back to our rotation, but if you're a weak team and you're forcing left, do you also dictate how you rotate? That if he's going left, so he's playing, our coverage is working, that we're going to fan out more versus when maybe he goes right. We're going to look to be more aggressive and send help, send rotation. I think, again, it depends on what the game plan is. If you say you're cool with Faku Campazzo, I mean, he's not in the early anymore, but if you're cool with him scoring 30, as long as Rudy doesn't get shots, I think it doesn't matter which hand you send him towards. Again, you pick your poison. You decide what kills you in the end, right? Yeah. With a guy like Vasily Micic, there's probably something to, you know, sending more help in different situations. If a guy who's a great scorer and great passer, if he's better to the right than to the left, one argument could be made that you send in more help towards the right because it's more dangerous. Yeah. But then again, there could also be an argument you send in more help, like, for example, stunting to the left because he's more turnover prone mm -hmm. going left. So as much as I hate the answer, it's a bit of a feel, mm -hmm. I think. Feel and vision. Yeah. But to your like initial start, sub, or sit question, I'd say keep the pick and roll on two and two as much as possible if you want to avoid a pick and roll ball handler from distributing all over the place. Our next start, sub, or sit for you, this has to do with turnovers and trying to limit them. We all talk about we don't want people to turn the ball over as much, but how you actually try to help players not turn it over. So start, sub, or sit, working on their IQ or just knowing where they're trying to throw the ball, whether it's through a set or whether it's through their offense, the system that you run. 
So whether you're, you know, just a really high fast paced system or more of a slow it down system that helps with or hurts the turnovers or the fundamentals of just passing with certain hands, faking a pass, jump stops, little things that can help slow a player's mind down. So start sober sit helping with turnovers. With a youth team, it's really clear for me. Or with a young pro team, like I used to coach in Austria, so I'd start with the fundamentals, sit the IQ part and sub the system with a young team. For the EuroLeague or pro level or higher pro level, also Austrian national team, I really struggle to come up with a clear answer because, you know, the time constraints are there. So obviously, put it this way, the quickest fix would be to have a system where instead of, you know, like running 10 different cuts and throwing the ball around to get into a side pick and roll. Why not get into the side pick and roll right away? That's the quickest fix. Is it the best fix? I don't know, because I believe that even if you have a point guard that's 36, there's still something to work with him on passing going left. Because eventually he has to throw the pass. And there's also still something to make him understand, okay, this is the pick and roll. This is how they rotate in. This is the pass you should be throwing. So obviously I'm cheating now a bit. No, I'm cheating a lot. So I'll, I'll give you my youth basketball answer and that's or development basketball answer. That's fundamentals first, IQ second system, because in my opinion, the fundamentals allow you to use your IQ and your IQ needs to align with what you do in the system. Yeah. And obviously all of them are important, but we were thinking about when players, especially as we're recording this is somewhat early in the season for most coaches and the ball's being thrown all over the gym in various ways. And, you know, instead of just yelling, stop turning it over. It's like, well, how do you really help them <laughs> not turn it over? I think with that coaching, I love that you just said, stop turning the ball over. Yeah. <laughs> right. <but> how? <laughs> and I think we as coaches often fall into that trap. It's like, ah, you gotta be tougher. Or you got to play quicker. You got to be a better defender. You got to be this. You got to be that. Which all is true. But I think it's important to let players know, okay, what does that mean? Yeah. For example, being tougher. Okay, that means you cannot get beat on every screen. You cannot hang in every screen. That's what it means to be tough defensively. Uh, Don't turn the ball over might mean take an extra dribble to create the passing on the pick and roll. I think these things have to be paired with an instruction on what to do and how to do. Because... You know, like, I'm not going to become a better passer by just, yeah, don't turn the ball over or just focus. I I will never forget this. This was my first season as an assistant coach. And one of our young guys was in the second league in Austria. And one of our young guys turned the ball over against the press. And I got into him. I was like, hey, that's effing focus here. And then our single foreign player, Croatian point guard, who was older than me, got into me. And like, yeah, but how the F do you expect him to understand what he's supposed to do now? And there it made click for me. It's like, ah, yes, that's a good point. I cannot encourage coaches enough to you know listen to their guys because oftentimes, first of all, they're the ones who have to do the stuff, obviously. Right. And second of all, turns out they know a lot about the game. Coach, my quick follow-up is looking back at the systematically, is there something that you've maybe phased out of what you like to do because you feel whether just the defense has gotten better or I don't know what the reason that you phased out because you think it's more turnover prone it's difficult because it always goes hand in hand with the roster you have if you have somebody who can create very well and he's he or she's an athletic beast and can get downhill i would not go with you know 16 seconds of fluff before you go into the pick and roll if you want to avoid turnovers i mean there is an element to you know moving the defense and having the defense discombobulated before you get into your drive before you get into your dominoes right i think it depends on the team what i would certainly do and i've been always a coach who likes to run a lot of complicated and complex actions because i do believe there is again something to move the defense but if i had a player or if i'll have a player in the future that can break down defenses easily, I'll try to keep it more simple. Sure. Our last one for you okay. is defending an elite shooter off a pin down screen. Mm-hmm. So top block him, try to, I guess, cancel the screen, blow it up, trail and have the passer kind of like that next dig in or again in that trail situation, but with support from the big who's setting the screen. Sitting the big, helping up, because a lot of players, they're really good at reading that big stunting up. And especially if this is a lob target, like they're going to find that. So that's going to be the sit for me. The sub will be the stunt, because again, if you have teams that are intelligent or in terms of spacing, and if that entry passes a good shooter, they will just, you know, drift Mm -hmm. on on that stunt. And you're going to have to be able to stunt the stunter. And this is already complex rotation. Yeah. Speaking about rotation again. (laughs) Yeah, um, yeah. And and the start again for me, I don't think I would have answered it that way. Let me put it this way half a year ago. But if you can blow that action up in the beginning, you know, your job is done. So top lock would be the start for me. 
even if you're just partly successful, the angle of how the guy comes off of the pin down often prevents him from firing that thing right away. Sure. So at least you have the first danger contained. Coach, with the top lock, I guess, what is the technique? You know, how do you get a, basically avoid using your hands when you kind of top lock and you know, not drawing fouls? I'd say it's it's the armbar you should use. And I compare it to, you know, I used to call it downing the down screen, similar to, you know, like downing the side ball screen, icing it. Mm-hmm. So there's probably... A million coaches you can ask that have a better answer or more technical answer than me. This is one of those just get it done things in a way. You just want to sit on his top shoulder, on his top, or on his nose or whatever, Mm -hmm. and armbar him and direct him at least away from the way he wants to go. I think that's my answer. Again, not really satisfactory and uh, also food for thought for myself that I need to find a way of teaching it better, but that's how I would answer it right now. Well, coach, you're off the start, sub, or sit hot seat. Thank you for playing that with us. That was a lot of fun. We've got one more question for you as we wrap up, but before you do, wow, this has been really great today. So thank you for all your thoughts and your time here. I'm really honored. Again, I said this before we started recording. It's an honor considering, first of all, the job that you two guys have been doing. Like I've been a subscriber of the Slapping Gas TV. So this is this is my Netflix over here in Lithuania. <laughs> no, 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 no Squid Game, only playbooks. Um, so thanks for like helping the community out and also helping me become a better coach. And it's also been an honor, you know, to be in the same seat as, you know, Andrea Tinkeri, Brad Stevens, Bill Parcels, but also other young, great coaches like Jimmy Oakman or KJ Smith, uh, you had on on one of those yeah, extra past yeah. sessions. So this is unbelievable. I'm really flattered. So thank you. Pleasure's ours. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much, coach. To finish here and to close, it's a question that we ask most of the guests. What's one of the best investments that you've made in your career as a coach? I'd say... And it was the best investment, but it's not an investment I made. The best investment in all of my coaching career has been the investments that people made in me. And I, I will be super amiss if I don't, first of all, mention them here, but also like call them by name. Because I've been grateful to have a family that has supported me. As you can imagine, there's like some parts of the world where basketball is not as fiscally and financially attractive as it is in others. So like the financial, but also emotional support that my family, my parents, my sister have given me has been huge. I have a really understanding and patient wife. She also enables me to live my dream. So without those four, wouldn't have been able to do it. And obviously friends, too many to count. But like again, I want to mention two, actually three people on the basketball side. That's for one, uh, Austrian national team head coach, Raul Corner, who's been a mentor since I was 15, 16. My old coach at the team in Austria, Hubert Schmidt, who's been so confident in my abilities that he let me try out a lot of things as an assistant coach. So him and obviously, and I've mentioned him quite a bit, Martin Schiller, who's been yeah my biggest mentor since day one. And without his support, I wouldn't be nearly as where I am as a person and as a basketball coach. So I'm really happy and blessed to have people invest in me. And that would be my advice also for all coaches, be it young, old, new, experienced. Find people who see something in you. Be there for them as well. You know, have like a servant leadership mentality. Be open to help them. Be in conversation with them because, you know, one mentor and one person investing in you can change your life. But I've been lucky to have multiple ones. Thank you so much for listening to this episode with Coach Stefan Grassiger. Please make sure to visit slappingglass.com for more information on the free newsletter, Slapping Glass Plus, daily videos, and much more. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass.